This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, um, Sam, before you take off, this is one of our missionaries from Portugal, Sam Schwartz, who's visiting with us this morning. So I wanted you guys to get a chance to meet Sam. I was actually looking over the notes. This is uh, the 20th anniversary this year of us as a church getting to support and partner with Sam and Tracy in their ministry in Portugal, uh, where they do evangelism and discipleship, as well as help reach out to a lot of the people who are uh, oppressed and disenfranchised in Lisbon. And so we're really grateful for the partnership and the gospel we have with the Schwartzes. If you uh, want to know more about their ministry, they'll be out on the patio afterwards. I would love to talk with you, especially if you speak Portuguese, right? They would love to be... <laughs> Tested in that. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. I know you've got a couple classes you're going to go visit soon, so I don't want to keep you uh, from, from that. All right. If you have a Bible, feel free to open to Isaiah chapter 40, where we're going to be this morning, and feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well. Um, and we're going to talk today about what it means to have hope in God. So I want to start with the question, when is a time in your life you've experienced some level of hopelessness? When's a time when it's felt like there is no future? When's there a time when it's felt like a part of your life, even just a section of your life, has had no hope in front of you? Hopelessness is such a powerful poison, even diluted into just a section of our life, it can feel like it takes over everything. You know, if we feel hopelessness, even if it's just in a part of who we are, it can cast a whole pall over our entire identity. If you feel hopeless in your romantic life, if you feel like there's no chance you'll ever get married or that your marriage will ever recover, it can debilitate every part of you can lead to despair. If you feel hopelessness in your health and you feel like you're never going to be whole again, it can uh, cast a huge cloud over all of who you are. If you feel hopelessness about your career, that your dreams haven't come to fruition and that you are not who you thought you would be at this point in your life, it can lead to despair and anger towards people around you. Even if it's not centralized to who you are, if you can feel hopelessness for others, right? You can feel hopelessness about our government or about the state of our country, feel hopeless about where your kids are or where your parents are, it can lead to anger and vitriol towards people around you. Hope is a po- hopelessness is such a powerful poison. What about when you're hopeless toward God? You feel hopeless that you'll ever hear from God, hopeless that God will ever forgive you or ever love you, You feel hopeless maybe that you'll never get back to a place that you feel like you were at before with God. Um, Hopelessness can tamp down all of our joy, all of our desire, all of our longing. And we're going to talk today about a time when Israel was in a place of deep hopelessness. A quick word of description of the book of Isaiah. We've been going through the the Bible in a year. last couple weeks we've been in Isaiah. We'll have one more sermon on Isaiah next week as well. It's the longest of the prophetic books, and um, the first half of the book, from chapters 1 to 39, describe a warning of what's to come. This is the forward-facing part of the book, where Isaiah warns Israel that if they don't turn from their sins, judgment is going to come. And he warns them over and over throughout a number of different uh, kings during Israel's history, you guys need to stop your practice of oppressing the poor and the weak. You need to stop practicing idolatry. You need to stop entering into these encumbrances with foreign nations and trusting them instead of God. You need to stop your sexual immorality. You need to stop taking advantage of the orphan and the oppressed and the immigrant. You need to stop your sin. And yet they never did, right? Maybe in fits and starts, but ultimately it led to the judgment that Isaiah warned about. 
in an incredibly powerful and painful way. The Babylonian army invaded in 586 BC, and unlike times before where God miraculously delivered Jerusalem, this time there was no miraculous deliverance. This time there was no hope on the end of it. The Babylonians invaded and destroyed. They destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, they either killed or allowed to starve to death almost the whole Jerusalem population, and Israel experienced the full consequences of their sins. Those who survived were taken into slavery in Babylon. Young men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll talk about in a few weeks. And it left the people of Israel in a theological crisis for 70 years as they tried to figure out what it meant to be the people of God in exile. Now, if you like history, if you're a student of history, you know that wars often lead to theological crises. Uh, if you've ever studied the Civil War, you know that that was a huge theological crisis, especially for the South, because losing a war creates a deep sense of misunderstanding and apprehension about what people believed about God. A lot of students of European history would say that World War I was the root of a deep crisis of belief in Europe. And for Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of their people caused them to deeply question, where is God? This is how they describe it in Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Their hopelessness created a deep spiritual despair because their faith had failed to protect them when they needed it the most. Now, let's take a step out here for a moment. It's easy for us to look back 2,500 years later, and say, well, your faith didn't fail you, your sins failed you. The same way it'd be easy for us to look at the South during the Civil War and say, God didn't fail you. That was the consequences of your oppression of slaves and of people who were black. In the same way we could tell uh, people in Europe 100 years after World War I, it's not that God failed you, it's that you had these factors that led to war. But in the middle of it, from their vantage point at the time, there's this deep questioning in Israel. How can we be the people of God if we're hopeless. And this is where Isaiah chapter 40 comes in. Isaiah is a little bit of a confusing book. I, I grant that. And those of you guys who are reading through the Bible, maybe this week got to chapter 40, and um, unless you had a study Bible or some sort of note to help you, may have missed that there was a huge jump forward in time. And that can be a little confusing. Here's what I mean. Chapters 1 to 39 describe everything that happens 700 BC and before. Chapter 40 starts with describing things that happened about 550 BC and later. So you just jump forward about 150 years in one week. So if it feels like a long week, it's been a long week. Um, why does Isaiah do this? Why, why, why is this what he does in the book? Um, it's, it's like a movie where you have the future version of the character come back and they look the same, but they have gray hair and wrinkles and stuff. And they say, I'm you from the future. And this is what you need to know to be able to survive and thrive. And if it's back to the future, they give them a gambling guide so they can win at gambling, right? <laughs> this is what God's doing essentially through Isaiah. He's giving Isaiah a prophetic view of the future and saying, Isaiah, this is what you need to know. This is what Israel needs to know to be able to survive the crisis of hopelessness that they're going to endure. Isaiah, if Israel is going to survive the exile, if they're going to survive this questioning and this deep sense of hopelessness, they need to know that on the other side of hopelessness is a relationship with me. They need to know that on the far side of exile, there's a reason for hope. 
So Isaiah describes over these next uh, 16 chapters especially what it means to be a people of hope in the midst of hopelessness. And that's why he starts chapter 40 with this line. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now we'll get back to, to what it means to be comforted in the midst of hopelessness in a second. But, but I want to help us think about this in our lives too. You know, none of us are in exile in Babylon 2,500 years ago. We're all living today in the place you're in. But I think that the principle of hopelessness creating spiritual despair is one that resonates with our lives in this generation as well. We often can feel the same sort of despair that Israel felt. And we can say with them, God, you either don't see me or you don't care about me. I don't know which one it is, but both of them feel just as hopeless. We can look at our physical health or our spiritual health or our emotional health or our relational health, and we can feel like there is no hope of it getting better. And we can turn and shake our fist at God. And sometimes we turn and shake our fist at ourselves. And we say, this is my fault. It's my fault that this hopelessness had come, and that can often feel like the darkest form of hopelessness. So that's why I want to point out for a second before we move on, the, the beauty of what Isaiah is saying in verse 2. That God speaks comfort to them, and he speaks comfort to us. And the reason he speaks comfort is at the end of verse 2, when he says that they have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. What does it mean they've received double for all their sins? Does it mean they've, they've been punished twice? No, it means that they've received not what they deserve, but what they don't reserve. It means that their sin has been doubly paid for. Not from their hand, but from God's hand. At this point in salvation history, this is a little bit cryptic, this is a little bit shadowy. Uh, Isaiah's readers don't exactly know what he has in mind. This is something that becomes more clear when we see Jesus come in the New Testament. The idea that from the Lord's hand, our sins are doubly paid for. That means that on the one hand, they're forgiven, and on the other hand, we receive the righteousness of Jesus. We're not only forgiven, but we're the righteousness of Christ. This is described in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sometimes um, salvation is described as you committed some heinous act, but the judge declares you not guilty. And that's totally true. That's a, that's a wonderful view of justification. The problem with that view is could you imagine if you committed a heinous act of murder that you were responsible for, you were guilty of, it was covered in the news, um, and even though you were guilty, the judge said, I'll take the punishment on myself. That's wonderful that you're forgiven. Now, who wants to date you? Right? Who wants to hire you? <laughs> like, who wants to be your friend? Saturday Night Live had a skit a few months ago where it was O.J. Simpson on a date with a woman who hadn't watched the news in 20 years. <laughs> and the whole skit, O.J. Simpson is just like, you don't read any newspapers? You haven't seen any TV? Like, this is great. Finally, someone who doesn't see me as anything but the famous running back. Now, um, imagine that was us. Right? Without the double pay of our sin, that's the truth of us before God. But what 2 Corinthians says, what Isaiah implies, is that in Christ, we are no longer just the acquitted murderer, 
but we are the righteous son of God. We receive from Christ not only forgiveness for our sins, but the righteousness of Christ, that our sins are doubly paid for, and that is a reason for hope. Well, this is hard for us to believe and hard for us to live, which I think is why Isaiah says, speak, cry, behold, shout these things to Israel. Because if you're reading this in exile in Babylon, it is hard to hear a message of hope when you're hopeless. Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. For Israel and for us, we need to be reminded regularly that the despair around us really is not the defining feature of our lives. We need to hear, as verse 28 says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Um, I I, want to couch this whole sermon with, a respect and, an, and a deep humility about the hopelessness that is facing some people in our church and some of you, and some of you are feeling. Because one of the worst things to feel is to feel like people just don't get it. They just don't get it. They don't get why you feel so hopeless. And they just tell you to buck up or just have faith or it'll be better. And you say, if you knew my situation, you would know it is not so flippant. So I, I really, I, I don't know all the details of everyone's situation but I don't want to be flippant when I say there is hope on the far side of hopelessness. I do want to say, though, that God's power and his creativity challenge our spiritual despair. Because Isaiah tells us and shows us that God's authority has a breadth unparalleled. He is the everlasting God. He is the creator of all ends of the earth. There's never a time or a place that God does not bring hope. He's never weary. He's never tired. He doesn't despair of us. And his understanding of the situation, of your situation and of my situation, is far beyond ours. And there's no reason to despair of our faith in him. And I say that knowing that some of you come to church today in places of very deep spiritual despair. Maybe you feel like you've lost your faith, or maybe you never had faith, or maybe you have some faith, but it feels so foreign to who you used to be or who people think you are, that it's hard to even talk about with anyone else, much less with God. Maybe you feel like a, like a lizard who has outgrown your skin and you feel like you have to leave it behind if you're ever going to move forward. How do you hold that kind of spiritual despair with God? This week, uh, as you guys can see, we're, we're having Vacation Bible Spectacular. We're really excited about it. We're going to ask a, a bunch of 4- and 11-year-olds to make professions of faith in Christ. I hope you pray for that. This is a good and right thing to do. We think that children have a way of understanding the gospel and responding to it. I imagine a lot of you probably responded to the gospel the first time when you were a kid. But there is a, an irony that we don't often think about, or maybe you do think about, of how do we hold a faith from childhood all throughout our adult life? How can what the Bible says, that, that childlike faith is good, that we should never inhibit the children from coming to God, on one hand, but on the other hand, you know, when I was a, th- when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I was an adult, I put childish things away. You know, we, we don't ask adults to keep loving Pokemon. We don't ask adults to keep believing in Santa Claus. We don't ask adults to... Uh, keep acting like kids, why do we ask them to hold on to their childlike faith? I imagine, here, why am I bringing this up? I imagine for some of you, 
some of the spiritual despair you feel comes from a mistaken belief that you have to have the same faith that you did when you were a kid. A mistaken belief that you have to keep acting and believing the same things you did when you were eight years old. A quick metaphor. Um, we are going through the process of bicycles and tricycles and training wheels and all those things in our house right now. I think those things exist in order for me to trip on them. I think that's the reason <laughs> we have those things. And um, we, ha we have all of them in the driveway. They never make it in the garage. They always just stay in the driveway. And um, I imagine, it, as an adult, if I tried to climb onto my four-year-old's training wheels bicycle, I would be immensely frustrated. And, I, and the foolish thing for me to say would be, oh, bikes are for kids, right? Bikes are terrible. No, no adult should ride a bike. Look at how am I supposed to ride this thing? No, no, no. No, bicycles aren't terrible. It's just I'm trying as an adult to hold on to something that's made for a kid. Uh, God exists in such a larger sense than what we can grasp as a child. Now, as the, as the saying has been said, um, faith is like a a wading pool, small enough for a child, but deep enough for an elephant. It's not that God is surpassed when we get into adulthood. It's that our understanding of God that we had as a child needs to grow. Despair can, come, can bring good into our lives because it can help us see how great God is. If we shake our fists and say, we, there must be more to God than I knew before, that can push us to see that there truly is more to God than I knew before. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian. If you, if you haven't read the uh, Chronicles of Narnia in a while, maybe since you were a kid, they're worth picking up in, the, in your adult years as well. If you've never heard of these before, um, they are books that are intended for children to teach them essentially metaphors of what the Christian life is like. And in the first one, we meet these four young kids who encounter this figure, this lion figure named Aslan, who's meant to represent Jesus. And in the second book, they come back. And one of the little girls named Lucy sees Aslan and says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan responds, that is because you are older, little one. And she's confused. She says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The process of challenging our spiritual despair is rooted in seeing God as great and as big as he truly is. If you and I were to go and look at the mountains as kids, we might have a small view of how wild they are. But the older we become, the more intimidated and significant the wildness of the wilderness should be to us. The problem, Isaiah says, is that Israel's view of God is too small. Haven't they seen? Haven't they heard? He is the God of the ends of the earth. He never faints or grows weary. Look at the greatness of God. That's why Isaiah 40 is filled with depictions of God's grandeur. It's why in verse 12 it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Isaiah 40 is filled with exhortations to Israel and to us to recognize the greatness of God. Here's what I'm saying. The antidote to spiritual despair for Israel, and, and maybe for us at times as well, is to reflect on the grandeur and greatness of God. Now, how do you do this? How do you expand your view of God in order to help grow in hope? Well, um, Shauna Murray, who's a, a physician and a pastor's wife in Scotland, 
uh, writes really um, movingly about her experience with spiritual depression. Um, and she would say she was both clinically depressed as a, as a medical professional and also spiritually depressed as a Christian. And she said that one of the things that was most helpful for her, in addition to therapy and, and medication, was regularly reminding herself of the grandeur of God. And uh, bear in mind, this will sound more impressive with a Scottish accent, which I'm not going to pretend to have. Um, but she says about walking on the shores of Scotland and seeing the waves crash and hearing their sound, reminder of how great God is, and that helped her lift her out of a place of spiritual despair. So that's on the one hand, and then Romans says the other part, the other antidote to spiritual despair is not just the vastness of God, but the closeness of God. It says in Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you hear that, that, that connection that Paul's saying? He said, and when we reflect on the greatness of God, it pushes back against our despair. But when we reflect on the love of God that the Spirit has given us, it also gives us reason for hope. The power and nearness of God together. And in that, his strength becomes our strength. That's what verse 29 says, is that we receive strength from God. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They that mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah is saying, the spiritual despair you're experiencing, Israel, is normal. It's discouraging, but it's normal. Even young men, even select men, that's the Hebrew term there for young men, the, the ones who are the best athletes, they get tired. We all get tired. We all get exhausted. We all experience spiritual despair. But it doesn't need to continue, right? There's strength to be found in God. And God gives freely of himself to those who wait on him. Not those who run on their own, but those who wait on him, those who obey him, who trust him, and who expect him to act. God himself is strong. You know that from looking at the natural world, Isaiah is saying. But he's not just strong for his own sake, he is strong for your sake. And he will help you to endure. As I, as I, uh, when I was a young football player, I thought of strength in pretty you know, yeah, like singular terms, like how much could you bench press, how much could you um, leg press, those sorts of things. Now that I can't touch my toes, I think of strength in, more, in a more variety of terms, right? Strength is more about resiliency. Uh, like, I am actually trying to touch my toes right now. This is, what I, this is as far down as I can get. Um, like, the ability to be flexible and to be resilient and to endure is just as much a sign of strength as the ability to push a car. And Paul, uh, Isaiah says that, we receive strength from God so that we can endure. Like the marathoner type strength. It's that strength that God himself provides that's described in the fruit of the Spirit. Strength to be patient. Strength to have self-control. Strength to be loving. Strength that reflects what God himself is like. Now, a lot of commentators have pointed out and have observed that the strength is described in an interesting, decreasing way. It's described as soaring like an eagle, and then running, and then walking. Uh, shouldn't it be the other way? Like, shouldn't we be optimistic about what's to come? Like, shouldn't you start walking, and then start running, and by the time you're really strong, you can start flying? Uh, why does it go backwards, right? Why, why is it? Well, there's a couple theories. The one that I find the most compelling is that that kind of reflects the Christian life for a lot of us. That, you know, maybe in our young 
years of faith, whether those happen as a kid or as an adult, it doesn't really matter. Um, we sometimes experience hope in such a soaring way. And then after we walk with God for a while, it feels slower. And sometimes there can feel despair in that. Like, I wish I could just get back to what my faith was like as a college student or as an eight-year-old or in my first days of coming to Christ. But all of them are moving forward and all of them are strength that we receive from God. And that's what I would want for you and for me and for everyone in our church. I would want you to be a person who's thriving spiritually, who experiences the strength of God because it comes from God himself. Not just so that you feel vitalized or enthusiastic or motivated, but so that you experience the spirit of God in your soul. Spiritual vitality comes from God himself. And the lack of vitality, the presence of despair, can be a driver for us to want to be close to God. You know, there may be a lot of reasons in your life to be hopeless right now. Maybe it was some of the ones I mentioned before. Maybe it was something else that I didn't mention. Um, and those are real reasons to be hopeless. This is a real reason to pray for the kids above us. And, you know, I love hearing them run around. That's fun. Um, there, there are real reasons to be hopeless. I, I get that. And, and what's the burden some of you are carrying, if I was carrying them, I would be feeling hopeless too. Um, but as a Christian, there's also a real reason to have hope. Hope that endures far beyond what this world provides. And this passage points us to the ultimate hope we have in Jesus Christ. Right? This passage helps us see what hope we long for that's ultimately found in the New Testament when Jesus comes. We hope for a double payment for our sins, that we can be righteous and not just forgiven. We can be hopeful of an eternity with God. And Jesus is that double payment for our sins. Isaiah said that Israel could have hope after exile in Babylon because their sins are doubly paid for. And in Christ, we have that hope that we can take on not just, he doesn't just take on our sin, but we take on his righteousness as well. This passage points us to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate hope of strength after despair. Like, if you were to think of the most hopeless situation a person could be in, wouldn't it be the cross? Right? Wouldn't it be that moment where their physical life, their emotional life, their spiritual life, and their relational life all at the same point are destroyed? I mean, that's what happens on the cross, right? Jesus is, Jesus is going to die. Jesus is abandoned by his disciples. Uh, Jesus is mocked and his legacy is destroyed. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the most hopeless moment. And yet we see in Jesus that there is reason for hope, even on the far side of the most hopeless moments. That in his resurrection, we see that Jesus has life, faith, and relationships far beyond what any of us could dream for. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Isaiah points us towards. He is the one that allows us to connect with God. As he says himself in John 15, that he is the vine and we are the branches. That whoever abides in him bears much fruit. He is the reason we can have strength and come to God. And Jesus is the one ultimately who will be faithful to the people of God. Just as God doesn't abandon the people of Israel after the exile, Jesus says, I won't abandon you either. And that's why all four Gospels open with a line from chapter 40, when it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert, in the desert a highway for our God. Right? Isaiah is saying to the people of Israel, in the midst of the desert, there is a reason for hope. And when Jesus comes, that's how the Gospels introduce him. This is the one who we hope for.
Jesus is the shepherd who has come after the lost sheep. As Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, he will tend the flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus does for us as well. And because of that, we can have hope in him. Because of that, we can say with Isaiah 8, 17, I will wait for the Lord, even who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. And we can even paraphrase that for our own lives. I will wait for the Lord, who seems to be hiding his face from me, and I will hope in him, because I have seen in Jesus a good reason to hope. And when we do that as Christians, as we do, when we do that as a church, when we don't engage in hopelessness or in despair or in pity, but rather in hope with Christ, meaningful, real hope, not, not a pie in the sky, but a deep sense of conviction that in Christ we have a reason for hope, we can hold out hope to a world that is scared and hopeless and despairing. A couple questions for you to pray about this week. Uh, first one, on a scale of one to ten, I know this is an overly simplistic scale, but, but just go with me for a minute. How much spiritual strength versus spiritual despair are you experiencing in your life right now? If you're just honest with God, there's no right answer on this, but if you were to put it on a scale of one to ten, with ten being, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in the throne room of God, and one being like, I feel like I'm in exile in Babylon. Like, how much despair is in your life right now? And who could be a person you could talk to about that? A helpful person that would give you a reason to have hope. And if you feel like, honestly, there's no one in your life like that, there is no, there's no person who holds any hope. There's no person I can be honest with. There's no person who feels safe. I would love to talk with you after the service about helping you get connected with a life group or a Stephen minister that can help hold hope even when you feel hopeless. Let's close our time in prayer. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who feel a deep sense of hopelessness in their life right now. And uh, for good reasons. They feel hopeless about their health or they feel hopeless about their family or they feel hopeless about their soul. They feel hopeless about you. God, I, I, um, I know how poisonous hopelessness can be to all of us. Uh, and I know how real the situations of this world can seem. God, I pray for them this morning that they would find hope in you. They would find hope in your word. They would find hope in Jesus. And ultimately, um, that they would be able to find hope in what it means to be connected to you. God, I... Um, pray for our church that we would be a place of hope rather than a place of hopelessness, that we would be a place where people in despair can come and can find you bigger than they remember, that they can find healing and longing for what is to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In these last few moments together, I want to invite you to hear the words of Jesus from the book of Matthew, inviting us to a place of rest in him, of wholeness, a place of restoration for our souls. And as we sing it together, as we join our voices, that we would remind our hearts of this invitation, this wide open welcome for every one of us. Well, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. 
come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke service. Roxanne and Greg are on your right, and they would love to pray with you. Our benediction today uh, comes from 2 Timothy 4. Oh, there it is. May the Lord be with your spirit. May grace be with you this week. Amen.
I feel like the ending of that
Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. Your kingdom first, we hunger and we thirst, refuse to waste our lives, for you're our joy and prize, to see the captive hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace.
Tenderness, he saw me. Weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. While angels in his presence sang until the
Till your bed. 